The, the reading for tonight, I have Psalm 110 verse 1. That's the scripture platform text, but I'll read the rest of Psalm 110. It's a very brief psalm, um, but turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110, please. Okay, there we are. It's a psalm of David. I'll read the entire psalm. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are are to you as to the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are God. You are three times holy, infinitely, essentially, unchangeably, perfectly holy. And Lord, we tremble to be in your presence. Even those of us who are found covered with the righteousness of the Lamb of God, who has taken away all of our sins. We pray that we would fear you properly, that we would reverence you, that we would hold you in awe, and that all of our trust would be bound up in you, Jesus Christ. Help me, Lord, in the ministry of the word tonight. Help us all actively participate in our reception of this word. Conform us into the image of the beloved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the particular mini-series looking at Jesus Christ as he's represented in the book of Psalms. If you are familiar with the Bible, and I think everybody here should be familiar with the Bible, one of the reasons we train our children to read, um, in our case to read English, is so that they can read the Bible for themselves. So one of the things that, that we did early on as Christians before I was a minister is we had family worship. We're doing a mini series on family worship for Sunday school and one of the things that we would do in family worship is we would, we would test the kids' reading skills with the Bible. And before they could even read, we would whisper the verse to them, and then they would repeat it back. And then as they grew in their ability to read, our purpose was that they could read the Word of God. And our purpose in having our children read the Word of God is so that they could find Christ as he is represented in the Bible Now, Christ says of the Bible, the entire Bible, from the book of Genesis 3.15 onward, it's all about Christ. And I don't mean every jot, every tittle, I don't mean every sentence is in reference to the person of the work of Jesus, but it, it, it all in some way is subordinate or supportive of the message that God will send his Redeemer in to crush the head of the serpent and to set his people free. That's the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And Jesus, you remember on the Emmaus Road in Luke 27, 4, excuse me, he says to the guys, you you foolish men, didn't you know from Moses and the prophets that Christ was to suffer 
and then rise and come into his glory. So the whole Bible preaches Jesus. So from every single book of the Bible, we should be able to find Christ, whether it's Christ in Genesis 3.15, it's Christ in Isaiah 53, it's Christ in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 9, or, or, or the Psalms. Christ is all over the Psalms. And then when, what we're looking at, particularly for our purposes, is to be able to go to the New Testament where the Holy Spirit has inspired the apostles to say what was written there, in our case tonight, Psalm 110, verse 1, that's about Christ. And my Lord said to my Lord, and the Father said in reference to the Son, sit here until I crush all the enemies of Christ in his church and put them under your feet. And so our purpose is is to, to look at Christ. I'm reading a book by Jeremiah Burroughs. I'm reading lots of books, but... On Burroughs, and he talks about he's unpacking in a series of sermons on Isaiah seven. His name is wonderful, and when we think of Christ, he's trying to unpeel. It's very much like unpeeling an onion, and he says, "Here is why Christ is wonderful. He's wonderful in his person. He's wonderful in his work. He's wonderful in his attributes. He's wonderful in his his worship." And what he's trying to do is lift our hearts off of ourself, off of the world and to fix them on Christ so that we would, we would be enthralled with Jesus, that we would, we, we would just fall deeply in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I make no apologies that one of my main thrusts in my preaching ministry is to preach Christ and to, to be a gospel preacher, a Christ preacher, that we would come in week in and week out Look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ. And, um, and then the things of the world would grow strangely uh, dim. That's my purpose. So my purpose here tonight is we're going to look at Psalm 110, as we just read. We've looked at this psalm previously in two prior sermons. Psalm 10, I believe this is correct, is either directly quoted by the New Testament or alluded to the New, in, in the New Testament 24 times. So it's the most frequently quoted uh, psalm in the New Testament. And in fact, Psalm 110, verse 1, the verse that we're looking at, has been quoted in the New Testament directly maybe three, four, five, six times. And I'm going to give us a couple of quotes where we see directly the writer says, this is Jesus. Uh, The Lord said to my Lord. And so we have looked at this particular psalm before. Um, if I were to ask you a question, what New Testament book exegetes or explains the book of Leviticus? What New Testament book explains the book of Leviticus? Could you answer that question? It's Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. So if you go to the book of Hebrews, the first seven or eight chapters deal with the sacrifice, or excuse me, the sacrifices. And then from chapter like seven and eight onward, you have the sacrifice errors, the priests. So you start with the sacrifice, then you start with those who make the sacrifice, the priests. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you kind of leave like, what's all the blood? What's all, why priests? Why these sacrifices? And I would argue, if you understood Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, throw in the book of Romans, but that if you knew the book of Hebrews, Hebrews would say, though all of those sacrifices fulfilled in Christ. 
All of those high priests fulfilled in Christ. Even Christ is the temple. Christ is the feast days. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christians no longer sacrifice the Passover. I know some dispensationalist Christians do. I, I don't think they should. The Bible says we sacrifice. We, we, we participate in the Passover. Christ is our Passover. So previously we've looked at Psalm 110 under two sermons. And um, if you looked at um, Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, we looked at Christ in his office as king, and then we looked at Jesus Christ as his office as priest. And it's a very unique combination. We oftentimes talk about Jesus as our mediator. If I were to ask you this question, how many mediators are there between sinful man and holy God? How many mediators between sinful man and holy God? What does the Bible say? One. Now, in the church I was raised with, we had many mediators. I spent my whole life praying to the Virgin Mary. I had my own personal mediator, and we called him, it was St. Patrick, and I I prayed to a man, St. Patrick. I wore a medal around my neck and would hold the medal, and I would pray to St. Patrick. He was my intercessory saint. Now, none of that was true, because the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the God-man, Christ Jesus. That's in reference to his mediatorial office, his salvific office. And we often say that Jesus is our prophet, Jesus is our priest, and Jesus is our king. Psalm 110 talks about the kingly office of Christ, that he rules over all his enemies for us, for his people, and then he's a priest. And when we look at the kingly language, especially as we're looking at tonight, his session, we've seen previously military language is applied to Jesus. Modern Christianity does not believe this. They, they, They don't read the Bible. And so modern Christianity, which is not according to the Bible, they make up a Christ of their own understanding. They don't like the militaristic language as inspired by the Holy Spirit, as applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a super overcoming, victorious warrior king. That's what we're looking at here. We saw it when we considered last week the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is seen as this oriental king who's taking his captives captive. And that's as applied to Jesus Christ. And so we want to be good Bereans. We want to be Bible Christians, which means we have to read the Bible. And whatever the Bible says about our Christ, we want to believe. Are there things in the Bible, even as believers, that we find difficult? Yes, of course. But when we find those things difficult, what should our response be? Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. We should submit our wills in our minds and our reasoning to the word of God. And so it's not anti-intellectual, it's not infantile or juvenile when someone says, why do you believe what you believe about Jesus Christ? For us to say simply, the Bible says it. Marriage is to be, according to the Bible, between one man and one what? Woman. Now, I'm going to be 59 years old in August. Up until two years ago, I never thought anyone would question that. 
Why is that true? The Bible says it. If we come along as Christians and say, the, the world looks at us and says, why do you believe this archaic thing? Our rejoinder is not, I think or I feel, but the Bible says it. Why do we believe what we believe about Christ? The Bible says it. And when the rejoinder to us is, well, the Bible is filled with lots of mistakes. Our response is, no, it isn't. It's the perfect word of God. And so we live and we die and we live again in hope of this book about this Christ. So there are lots of different Christs. There's only one true Christ. We don't want to believe in a false Christ. We want to believe in this Christ. Amen? Okay. So we looked at previously, as I say, two sermons before, on the kingship and the priesthood of Jesus from this psalm. And um, I want to read how Psalm 110 is used in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22, and Christ himself is going to take Psalm 110 and he's going to say, this is me. So you may be thinking, well, Pastor John, I don't know if I believe your preaching. You only should believe my preaching insofar as I say what's true according to the Bible. But here's a good rule for your Christian life. If Jesus says something, is that a good idea to believe Jesus? I think it is. So if Jesus says Psalm 110 is in reference to me, it's in reference to him. No matter if some really smart scholar who's an unbeliever says it isn't, he's wrong, Jesus is is right. Matthew 22, verse 34. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, So the Sadducees were the Libertine Party. They were the Antinomians. Sadducees were the worldlings. They wanted enough religion to be respectable, but not enough to curtail their fun. They wanted to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they die. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in Judgment Day. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits. They thought this life was it, and then you're a dead squirrel on the side of the road. And remember they tried to catch Jesus in saying, oh, good teacher, a man has a a wife and she dies and then she marries the seven brothers. Which one in the resurrection husband will she be? And they're trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't know God and you don't know the power of scripture. And now the Pharisees, who are, I would say, they're a nationalistic party. They want to kill the Romans and they want to have the Jews rule and they're, they're legalists. So they're kind of the opposite of the Sadducees. They take their chance at tricking Jesus. The Pharisees hear that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gather themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, an ecclesiastical church lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. So sometimes religious questions, people say, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? Religiously. Some could be well-meaning questions, but this wasn't. Sometimes people ask you a question with evil motives. They ask Jesus a question with evil motives. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're trying to pit Jesus Christ against Moses. Christ says, I am the Messiah. So they want to they catch him running contrary to Moses so they can accuse him to the church court and kill him. But Jesus knows this. And he said, 
Here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. That's the sum of the first four commandments. Then he says, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's commandment five through ten. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. This is after the flesh. Now, Jesus wants to get at his deity. He says to them, then how does David in the spirit say, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. What did Jesus just prove to the um, Pharisees? Jesus is David's son according to the flesh. But in Psalm 110, Yahweh or Jehovah said to my Adonai. So Jesus says, how did David call him son and Lord? How is that possible? Because Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully what? He's fully man. He's the unique God-man. The theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. And you say to me, how does that work? I don't know how it works. The Bible declares it. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He takes his flesh from her flesh. It's kept free from the stain of original sin because he's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is God come in the flesh. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to unpack what we're looking at in verse 1 concerning Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We read this from our secondary standards. This is what's known as the session of Christ. S-E-S-S-I-O-N. The session of Christ. It's another way to say the seating of Jesus. So Christ dies. Christ is buried. In three days, he rises from the dead with the same body that he died, with glorified properties. And then he ascends from the earth up into heaven. And then the continuation of his estate of exaltation is he sits down at the right hand of God. That's what's being said. He sits down. I want to unpack some of the lessons that the Holy Spirit has for Christ's church regarding Christ's session. What does Christ sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, what does that teach the lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's my purpose. So if I were to take this in a Bible study fashion and I would hit it with my Bible study hammer, I would break it out into two. I would say there, there are two main themes being taught by the session of Jesus. The first thing that we learn by Christ sitting at, at the right hand, the, the right hand signifies the power hand. Um, most people are right-handed. I don't know why that is, but most people are right-handed. Uh, most people are not left-handed. And so can I throw a ball with my left hand? Yes, but not very well. And because my right hand is my power hand. And so when the Bible speaks about the right hand of God the Father, God the Father has no body. There's no substance. There's no 
physical substance. So you can't say God the Father has a... It, he, God is speaking... The, the, the English term is anthropomorphisms. He speaks in such a way that we understand it. So does, does God have nostrils? No. Does God have a right arm? Right arm? No. God the Father. And when the Bible says he sits at the right hand, it's an anthropomorphism so we understand that Christ is at the place of power. And in this particular context, from the death, the resurrection, the ascension, what God the Holy Spirit is recording for us is that our Jesus Christ is victorious. He has overcome the world. He has overcome the flesh. He satisfied the justice of, of God and he has sat down. I will butcher the Greek. Jesus in John chapter 19, John chapter, I, what is it, 19? Where Christ dies? And it, maybe my brother could tell me, Tetelestai. It is what? Finished. So the session of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that Christ has made satisfaction for our sins to the Father, and the Father has accepted them. He sat down. It is finished. Another aspect of that victorious overcoming that we learn by this session is he defeated the devil for us. Now, does the devil still run around? Is he prowling and roaring? Yes, he is. But Christ has plundered his kingdom. He has snatched us away from the dominion of the devil. The devil can pester Christians, and he can make us, as the Puritans would say, he can make us sad on the way to heaven, but he can't keep us from going to heaven because we belong to Christ. So he's satisfied the Father. He has defeated the devil. He's defeated death. So the great enemy of human beings is death. There's a reason it's universal that people cry at funerals because it's very sad. It's the dissolution of the body, the dissolution of the soul, and the session of the Lord Jesus Christ says to us that he has defeated even the grave for his people, that we, like our Christ, will rise from the dead. We, like our Christ, and I hope to quote it at the end, we are going to sit on the throne. I don't know exactly how that that works. The Bible says it in the book of Romans, and also I think one of the letters of, of Paul to Timothy, that we will sit with Christ on a throne. So as he is overcomer, he's overcomer for us. It shows us Christ being at the right hand of God. As Jesus says, all power, all authority has been committed to to him. Beloved, we don't see that right now. What do we see? We we turn on the news, we turn on the, the computer, and we see a world at war. When I was a child... I was keen to watch documentaries on World War II, particularly the war in Europe. I knew precious little about the war in the African campaign, but mainly the war in Europe. And the the announcer was a Brit, and it was called World at War series. Beloved, the world has been a world at war since Genesis 3, 1 through 8. And it's going to be a world at war until until Jesus Christ comes back. And we think, well, what's going to happen when Ukraine and, and what will happen with Ukraine and Russia? I, I don't know. Whenever that resolves, if it resolves, there'll be another war and another war and another war. And who really is governing all of this, really? Who is really governing it? 
Christ is governing it. Our Christ is governing it. Do we see that? No, we don't. But Christ is governing it. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 10 or 11, when Jesus Christ comes back, when he comes back, not if he comes back, the kingdoms of men will become the kingdoms of Christ. And and we need to believe that. You say, well, pastor, I don't see it. I, I don't see it either. But we are called not to walk by flesh, but we're being called to walk by what? By faith. This is why we have to be... It's easy to say, I am a Protestant, sola scriptura, Bible alone is my rule for... It's easy to say that. But I don't want... I, if you say, well, pastor, I want to see a, clock, a stopwatch on how much Bible you read every day. A lot of us don't want people to look at the stopwatch. It's easy to say we live by the Bible. It's harder to live by the Bible. So we need to walk by faith in this one that our Jesus has all power. Our Jesus has all authority. I just mentioned the business of the strangeness in marriage and and all of the things that people take for granted. I feel like I'm a hundred years old. I feel like I'm in a time warp. Like, what's wrong with this world? Boys are boys and girls are girls. And what's wrong with this place? Is Is this a world God mad? It's a world under the control of God. There is a devil, there's forces of darkness, but our Christ at the right hand of the Father is over all of it. And we need to believe that. Because if you don't believe it, you're going to get a steady dose of psychotropic medication because we will be out of our minds anxious. Am I not right with that? How many people are so stressed out of their minds as Christians because we don't realize Christ is on the throne? The, the, the other thing that I alluded to is that these things are finished. So the right hand signifies the power of Christ. The session of Christ testifies to us that Christ's suffering work, his dying work, um, his estate of humiliation work is over. Now I will tell you, when we look at the session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father in glory, This is one of the, I was raised a Roman Catholic. This is one of the reasons why Protestants reject the Roman Catholic Mass. And what they would say is that the Roman Catholic Mass is is contrary to our senses. And what they mean there is that you could have flesh that's not bloody or flesh that's not fleshly. They would say this is an oxymoron. It makes no sense. And they would say it's contrary to Scripture and it's derisive of of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Essentially, in the Roman Catholic Mass, there is a re-offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you a question. When Christ was offered up on a cross, was he in his estate of humiliation or exaltation? Which one? Humiliation. Can we humiliate Jesus Christ anymore? No, you can't. No, you can't. So the session of the Lord Jesus Christ mitigates and teaches against any notion that Christ could ever enter into in a state of humiliation again, as in re-sacrificing Christ even in a sacramental way, which is not possible. Again, read the book of Hebrews. And I'm just going to throw this out there. It's not my purpose. This is one of the things that convinced me. I was a dispensationalist at one time. Um... 
reading the book of Hebrews and this, would it be a return to a state of humiliation if Jesus left the right hand of the Father to sit on a stone throne in a stone temple in renovated Palestine? Yes. It's never going to happen, beloved. He's not leaving the right hand of glory to go to a stone edifice in a renovated Palestine. That's a going backwards. So it mitigates against the, the re-sacrifice and even any so-called dispensationalist scheme. So Christ's work of atonement is finished. It's done. Jesus says this. When Jesus lifted, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mentioned that Psalm 110, verse 1, in reference to Christ's session, is mentioned a number of other times in the New Testament. Let me give you one from Hebrews chapter 10. And this refers to Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Therefore, there are no more sacrifices. No more sacrifice. Only Christ's sacrifice. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? Once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. That's the Levitical priest. That's the Aaronical priest. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's the reference. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he is perfected for all times those who are sanctified. The reason that we can stand before God with unveiled faces is because Christ has paid for all of our sins on that, that one occasion. A couple of other things that Psalm 110, the session of Christ, revealed. Again, look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, this is in the Hebrew. I know less Hebrew than I know of Greek. I took two years of Hebrew, three years of Greek. I know baby, baby Greek, and I know baby, 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 baby Hebrew. But I know this much. This is Jehovah or Yahweh says to my Adonai. My Lord said to my Lord. One of the things that we learn from this passage is the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is clear in the Bible, but it is beyond human reasoning. Remember I said as Christians, we want to submit our reasoning to, to, to the Bible, to the word of God. The Bible says, doesn't Jesus Christ say in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil is tempting him, he says we are to live on every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God, even if we can't fully understand it. So we have the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, speaking to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, or we use, there's a Greek word, oh boy, it'll come to me at two o'clock in the morning. It's used in uh, Acts chapter 17. In the, the English, particularly the King James Bible says, the Godhead. This is the Trinity. One God, three persons, same in essence, equal in power and glory. And this is in part reference to that. 
So when someone says, where is this in the Bible? I would take them here. This would be one instance. Now you say, well, how does that fully work? I don't know how it fully works. But I know the Bible ascribes divine names, divine titles, works, and worship to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. My God said to my God. My Lord said to my Lord. The first person of the Godhead speaks to the second person of the Godhead. Now, are there other references in the Old Testament to the Trinity, that our God is three in one? Even in the Hebrew, the suffix im is plural, like the Nephilim is plural, the cherubim is plural. The name for God is Elohim. Even the name for God indicates a plurality in the Godhead. But if you read the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let us make man after our image. Even that language speaks, again, it's alluding to a plurality within the Godhead. And you have in the, in the creation, even earlier in the Genesis account, and the spirit of the Lord is hovering over the face of the deep. So you have God in the beginning, and I would argue it's in reference to all three persons of the Godhead in Genesis 1.1. And then you have a mention of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So again, it's beyond our reasoning, but the Bible does teach it. Now, redemptive revelation, the Bible, is progressive in nature. It becomes progressively clearer. So if someone says, well, the doctrine of the Trinity seems to be less clear in the Old Testament, that's very true. It gets progressively clearer in the New Testament. In, for example, John 1.1, this was Luther's. Martin Luther said this passage speaks against Arianism, that Christ is not merely a creature. He is fully man and fully God. And it speaks against what's called modalism or Sabellianism, that the Father morphs into the Son and the Son morphs into the Spirit. He says, no, this speaks against both of those heresies. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So at the session of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're being taught, one, the Trinity, and the other truth related to that is we're being taught that our Savior is God. He is the second person of the God. He is the Son of God. Now, Many of us have family that are not believers. Our moms, our dads, our sons, our daughters, our brothers, our sisters. I have a sister that is a quasi-Buddhist and she's a quasi-Unitarian. So she denies the Trinity. And so she'll say, well, I believe in Jesus. I just think he's a, a, a very good man. He's a very good man. But the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is a very good man. The Bible calls Jesus Adonai. The Bible calls Jesus Theos. The Bible calls Jesus Elohim. That means what? He's God. And therefore we worship him, we adore him, we trust him. So we're being taught the plurality in the Godhead. We're being taught both the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus is fully God. The Bible says that Jesus is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. 
He receives worship. He's called God. He overcomes the devil. He satisfies God because he is God in the flesh. We learn that by his session. As I mentioned, the Bible is the book of Revelation concerning Christ as mediator. When I say mediator, I mean as our federal head or our federal representative. It it used to be common in Christian language and even in non-Christian cultures to refer to the man as the head of the woman. And, And it would be the husband is the head of the wife. And what the reference was is he was her representative. So if the woman incurred debt, the debt became the man's debt. If the woman was in danger because she belonged to the man, she was his woman, he was her man, then he he interposed to put down the danger on her part. Christ is our head. What he does is our representative. And so when we look at him in his office as a king, he puts down his enemies but on our behalf. As our prophet He preaches the will of God for our salvation. As our priest, he lays down his life to purchase us. What is Jesus Christ doing right now at the right hand of God for us? What is he doing? He's interceding. He's praying for for us. It's always that for us. He's our representative. You can say, well, I'm an orphan. I'm a widow. I'm poor. I'm helpless. That's not true. As a Christian, none of those things are true. Your your Savior, fully God, fully man, is at the right hand of the power of glory, all authority. And he belongs to you and you belong to him, according to the covenant of grace. And so we're learning the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, his mediatorial offices, of Jesus, we've mentioned a couple already: his kingship, priesthood, and and so on. Uh, we've mentioned that he is interceding. He presents his sacrifice. Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley has that hymn: "Don't let that ransomed sinner die." And the notion is that Christ is before the Father, presenting Himself as it were, and therefore we can never perish. There are some Christians that believe you can lose your salvation. I will never believe that. Jesus says in John chapter 17, I lose how many sheep? None. None. He dies for the elect. He prays for the elect. All of the elect will be brought home because of this one. The other thing that the session reveals about the Lord Jesus Christ, we've already alluded to it a little bit, is that Jesus Christ is now in his estate of exaltation or glorification. We can't see him now. The Bible says this in the book of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels, he inherited a more excellent name than they. Christ is in glory, beloved. 
Christianity, again, I want us to be Bible Christians. Not only do modern Christians not believe the Christ of the Bible, they don't believe judgment, they don't believe atoning death, they don't believe holiness, they make up a form of Christianity after their own, which is hogwash, is not true Christianity. Sadly, a lot of what passes for Christianity is this worldly. There is a man who says, Christianity is about having your best life now, how to be healthy and how to be wealthy. Beloved, that is obnoxious. It is not true. Christ did not fundamentally come to die on a cross, to rise to the right hand of glory, to show us how to be healthy and happy here on this earth. That is not true. Biblical Christianity fundamentally is an otherworldly religion. What does Paul say? Set your mind on what? On things above and not on things below. We are not. Am I saying that we shouldn't be good citizens? We shouldn't be good students? We shouldn't be good moms and dads? We should be all of those things. But this world is not our home. We should not be so. Every political season, Christians get crazy. We get so crazy with all of this because we forget that we're not destined for here. Christ is there in glory. And he's there so we think, if I were to ask you this, as a Christian, how much do you think about Jesus Christ? Can you go a whole day without thinking about Jesus? How much do you think about where Jesus is right now? One more. How much do you think about when you die and go to be with Jesus? We're leaving. We're leaving. Someone came to my office this afternoon and said, well, lots of people don't believe these things and they believe this and they don't believe Jesus and they don't believe the Bible. What do you have to say about that, Pastor? And what I said is tell those people not to die. Tell them don't die. Because the moment you die, you'll be in the presence of Almighty God. And if you die Christless, you're going to hear, depart from me. You work of iniquity, I never knew you. Christ on the throne is calling us as believers for our affections to be heavenly, to think about heaven all the time. And I don't mean to walk around like, boy, can't I have fun in this life? I'm not talking about that. But we should be a heavenly people because our Christ is at the right hand of glory. And if we, we could transform our families, we could transform our churches, and we could transform our country and our world if Christians were more heavenly minded. And the last thing I want to say, and I promise I'll quit, is this. Christ's session, and I don't know how this works. I know it is true, but I don't know how it works. Christ's session assures us as Christians that we will sit on a throne. You could tell me that you are poor as a church mouse, that you have no money, that you're nothing but a laborer. I think in Portuguese, it's pobrecito, is a, is a poor person. But the Bible says that's not true. You are royal. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are royal. You're a royal son. You're a royal daughter. You're a nation of kings, royal priests. And Christ himself is going to take you from this ash heap of a world and he's going to put you on a throne because he's on a throne. Jesus says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. 
Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, listen to this. He who overcomes, you who believe in Jesus, I will grant to him or her to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Beloved, be encouraged. You are a super overcomer in our super overcoming Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.